You are listening to A Hope in Christ with First Baptist Church of Opelousas, Louisiana. We are a biblically driven, diverse, evangelistic family of believers seeking to glorify God by calling Acadiana to a saving faith and the hope found only in Jesus Christ. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast on most major podcast providers or check us out on the web at www.fbcopelousas.org. And now, A Hope in Christ. If you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Today we'll be looking at the first 13 verses of the chapter. And if you're new to us, if you're visiting, we are working our way verse by verse through this powerful gospel of Luke. And when we were last together last Sunday, we were at the end of Luke chapter 3 and we took a look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ and ultimately what it teaches us about Jesus. Now today in the very next passage, we find ourselves in the wilderness with Jesus as he is being tempted by Satan. Before we read today's passage, I want to draw your attention to a number of things that I want you to be looking for and a few things that I want you to keep in mind as we read God's Word together. And the first thing is this. First of all, as you read this passage, I want you to pay close attention to how Jesus answers each temptation. How does He respond when temptation comes His way? I mean... If ever there were someone who had the right to answer Satan with his own words, it would be our Lord Jesus Christ. But what you're going to see is he takes Satan to Scripture, and he answers Satan by Scripture. And so for you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's a great word of instruction to be found in that when temptation comes our way, how do we respond? But we'll talk a little more about that in a little bit. I want you to notice also what's playing out in Luke 4 in many ways, how it is a parallel to what took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, think about it. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the evil one, Satan in the form of a talking serpent, in the beautiful, pristine, perfect Garden of Eden. They're in a perfect world in which no sin in humanity and in which there is no sin in humanity, and yet this fallen angel in the guise of a talking serpent comes to tempt Adam and Eve. And in contrast, we see in the passage before us in Luke that he's painting for us a very different picture of the place of Jesus' temptation. He's not in a garden, he's in the wilderness. And, and that in itself provides to you and I a drastic contrast between the unfallen world of Adam and Eve and the fallen world in which our Savior and ultimately you and I live. The temptation, in other words, is the temptation he faces of the second Adam. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be appointed righteous. That is, as we're in Adam, as he is our federal head, as he is our forefather, all we have in him is death. The curse of death affects every man, woman, and child in this room today as we are a direct descendant of our forefather, Adam. However, 
Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the perfect Adam, in him the doorway to life has been opened. Where it was closed tightly through the sin of the first Adam, through the grace and the mercy offered through the obedience, the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, through faith in that work, life is restored to the believer. So what we have is a contrast between Genesis 3 and Luke 4, the temptation of the first Adam, a temptation in which he failed epically, and he plunged us all into a world of sin and misery, and then the temptation of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, which he passed, opening the doorway to life for everyone who would place their faith in him. So it's not a garden. It's a wilderness that this temptation takes place. And, and it's a perfect picture of our fallen world. Now notice also some other contrast between these temptations. Adam was tempted once. He sins. And we see immediately God gives three curses to humanity that follow. Jesus is tempted not once, not twice, but three times. And he passes every test and God's blessings flow for all who would have their faith in him. Adam lived in a perfect world, a world not tainted with death, a world not tainted with grief and suffering and woe and hatred and pain and grief and loss. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, he lived in the world we live in, a world that's completely enraged by the effects of our fallen nature, a world that groans out for redemption, a world that groans out for restoration. And we see the very one tempted is the one who would bring all of that to pass. So these are just some things you should be looking out for as we work through this passage. Now, we won't have time as much as I would love to to get into every detail of every temptation of the three, but I want you to understand the underlying greater danger and greater temptation of each because... As with our own, spiritually, there is more than meets the eye taking place in each of these. So first, there is a temptation to make bread from stones. Now, seemingly, that's just a temptation to eat. He had fasted for 40 days. He was hungry. What would be the big deal about that? Well, I want you to understand what was really taking place there. This is a temptation for Jesus not to have faith in the provision and providence of God. And there's a temptation that Satan says that if he would just worship him, Jesus would be given the whole world. This on its own. What, is, what are we seeing take place here? Well, what this is, is a temptation for Jesus to bypass the cross, bypass the plan of salvation, to do it his way and not God the Father's. And then third and finally, the temptation is to throw yourself down from the temple mount. I mean, we know that, that you will not be hurt, that God will send his angels to save you. Well, this is a temptation to presume upon the care of the Lord. Take it your own way. Go your own path. Don't trust the Father's plan. So we see three things here. Distrusting God's provision. We see the temptation to idolatry and ultimately distrusting God's providence. And in these three, I would argue, are encapsulated every temptation that you or I will ever face. 
ultimately will fall into one of these categories. And, and not only does Jesus pass the test in the way in which he responds, he sets the example of how his followers should respond as well. So if nothing else, I hope when we come out the back end of this today, by his example, you will know when temptation comes your way, and it will. Many of you are facing it right now, that you will know the path to respond and how to come out the other side in obedience and not in sin and failure. So let's go ahead and read this passage together. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. As we read Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And the Word of God says, now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when it had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus responded or answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And and he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him, until an opportune time. Go with me to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, as we look at your perfect word, as we look at the work of your perfect son, Father, we do so ever mindful that we continue to live in a fallen world. We continue to live with the temptations of the dark culture, of the evil one. Father, where he was perfection, so often we fail. Father, I pray as we look at your perfect word today that we would grow from his response, that we would see the path, the playbook, God, to obedience. Lord, I'm ever mindful that there are those before me this morning who are tempted to trust your providence, to trust your provision, who are trusted to follow the idols of this world and ultimately the idols of our own heart. And, and Lord, I pray through your word this morning that they will find new resolve. Lord, that they'll understand your perfect love and care. That they'll be able to detect and know the, the playbook of the enemy. That, Lord, their life would live in glory to you. Father, now as we enter this time of studying, I pray that you wouldn't allow me to say anything that doesn't give you your due glory because, Lord, you are worthy above all. It is in the most precious of names the name to which one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is Lord, the name of Jesus Christ, that we ask these things and lift these praises. 
Amen. You may be seated. All right, so as we said, this passage Luke is recording for you and I this morning is concerning the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness so, so that we would learn something about God's providence and, and something about God's provision in Jesus Christ and ultimately that you and I, in the way that he responds, would follow that example as believers in him. And it's those three things that I want us to focus on briefly this morning. So the first thing that Luke draws out that I want you to turn your attention to is an important truth this morning about God's providence. Did you notice how that Luke emphasizes that Jesus, first off, is not in the wilderness by accident? He's not someplace he's not supposed to be. Who led him into the wilderness into the first place? Look again with me, if you would, right quick at verse 1. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit into the wilderness. It is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that has led Jesus into the wilderness. It tells us that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's saturated by Him. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. I mean, He is exactly where God the Father wants Him to be. And yet, while in the wilderness, in the midst of spiritual exercises where He's fasting, and I hope you understand what the purpose of fasting is for, Fasting is designed to deprive you of the comfort and the very basic necessities of life, the bread and the, the food, the, the water, so that you will remember essentially three things. That first, everything that you have comes from God. Secondly, that you will remember that you are utterly and totally dependent upon God. And then finally, third, so that you will remember that God is better than anything this world has to offer, including the comforts, that he's better than food and water, that he's the giver of all good things, that we are utterly dependent upon him. And so Jesus is engaging in this spiritual exercises of, of fasting and prayer, and it is precisely at that place, at that moment, that Satan comes to meet him. You know, it should remind you of a, another place where Satan come to tempt a godly man in the book of Job. And we're told that Job is a righteous man, one of the rarest compliments given in all of Scripture. And yet we're told in Job 1 that even though he was righteous, even though he was in the will of his father, that he faced temptation. Job 1.8 says, When Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. A righteous man, an obedient man, yet another example of just because we strive to walk in the will of God, to walk in obedience, that it does not promise that we will not face temptation and hardship. I mean, think about it. Here's Jesus devoting himself by fasting to the Lord in the wilderness. We're told he's led by the Holy Spirit. And it is precisely there that he encounters his greatest temptation to this point. Now, I don't want you to miss this because there is an important truth about God's providence that the Lord intends for you and I to learn this morning, my friends, from this passage. And it's simply this, that you can be in the center of God's will. That you can be doing exactly what God would have you do, and yet you can still encounter your greatest trials, 
your deepest sorrows, your most difficult tests. And that's exactly what we see taking place right here. I mean, Jesus is doing exactly what the Father would have him do. He's being led obediently by the Holy Spirit. He's walking in perfect obedience to his Father. And it's precisely there that he encounters his greatest temptations. Now, friends, it ought to be a word of encouragement to some of you this morning. I mean, there are those of you in a room this size that right now you're trying to serve the Lord. You're trying to faithfully be obedient. You try to do exactly what you know He would have you do according to His Word, and yet you have found yourself in the deepest trials and problems and heartaches and heartbreaks, and you've wondered, have I done something wrong? I mean, if, if, if I were in the center of God's will, would this be happening to me right now? Would this temptation come my way? Would this heartbreak, would this grief, would this trial, if I was truly in the will of God, would I be dealing with this in my life this moment? And here you have the perfect example before you. You have the Lord Jesus Christ doing exactly what his father would have him do. Walking in perfect obedience. Walking in a level of obedience that you and I can't even hope to close to come to in our own imperfect lives. And yet in that moment, he still is faced with his greatest temptation. The temptation of the second Adam. And my friends, the truth is sometimes you are right where the Lord wants you. And the trial and the temptation is right there with you too. We must never forget that. You know, there are people who, who lie. There are men who claim to do what I do, what Pastor Chad does. They will tell you that if, if you will just come to the Lord, if you'll just be a Christian, if you'll just be obedient, that all your problems will be over. If you will give a bigger tithe, if you will say one more prayer, if you will plant a seed, that the world will be perfect for you. And in our Lord's own experience, we see that that is a damnable lie. Scripture makes it clear that it's not true. Do not think that when you encounter problems, it's necessarily because you are not where God would have you to be. Because sometimes you can be right in the midst of doing precisely what the Lord would have you do and yet face unbelievable tests, unbelievable trials. Now, are we sinners? Absolutely. Are we knuckleheads? I can't speak for all of you, but I think my wife would tell you I am. So do we not bring on our own hardship through our sinful actions? Absolutely we do. And we have to deal with the consequences of that. But do not think every hardship that you run into is because you are outside of the will of God. Because if Jesus proves anything in this passage, that the more you strive, the more obedience you seek, the greater temptation you're going to face. So stand firm in the truth of Scripture. Take heart this morning from the words of Luke that just because that trouble comes, just because that temptation comes, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're walking outside of the will of God. So there's a great message of God's providence in this passage, as I said, that, that just because you love the Lord Jesus, just because you're following the living God, just because you're trusting the gospel, that all of that doesn't mean that you will not have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death 
at some point in your life. It doesn't mean that you're not going to face the trials and the tribulations and the testings that come with living in a fallen world. But what it does mean is that even when you're there in the valley of the shadow of death, that you're not walking through that valley alone. And that's the promise to you this morning. That you have a great high priest who sits in the heavens right now making intercession for you as a believer. And not only does he sympathize, not only does he love, not only does he feel pity for, but he empathizes because he too has walked where you trod. He too has faced that temptation to sin. He too has faced that grief and that sorrow. And the closeness and the intimacy of understanding that not only does our Lord love us, not only did he die upon a cross for you and I, that he understands our pain. Because he's walked that path too. And that's a special closeness to the Lord this morning. So now there's a second thing that Luke especially wants to draw our attention to here. And it is God's provision for you and I in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to draw your attention especially to the first temptation because it captures this so well. And I want to make sure that you understand what Satan is doing here when he tells Jesus, look, you've been fasting for 40 days. You've got to be hungry. Why don't you just turn this stone into bread and eat? Now, it leads to the question, what is the true temptation here? I mean, is it what we see on the surface? Is it just for Jesus to break his 40-day fast? No, absolutely not. It actually goes so much deeper than that. See, the true motive behind Satan's temptation is to cause Jesus to question the love and the goodness and the provision of his Father. It's temptation for Jesus to take into his own hands the provision of what he needs and not trust in his heavenly Father's provision. It's a temptation for Jesus to contradict everything that he's been doing in this fast. I mean, the fasting is supposed to drive home to anyone who is fasting that it is God who ultimately provides for us. He's the one who gives us what we need. And Satan is saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, you're hungry. Where's your father? For 40 days you have fasted, you have starved. Where is your father in heaven? I don't see him supplying what you need. I don't see him giving you the bread. I don't see him turning that stone into bread. But you know what? I can. If you'll just trust in me. If you'll go my path and and not trust in your father. Look, you even in yourself, Jesus, you have the power to do it. You don't have to trust in your heavenly father's way. You have the ability. You can do miracles. You can speak the word and turn that rock into bread, so why trust your Father's way? You're you're going to give people all the food they can eat from a few measly loaves of bread and fish in a few months, and, and I know that you can turn this into bread. Your Father's forgotten about you. He doesn't care about what you need, so do it yourself. Make it yourself. What he's doing here is the game plan that has been from the first sin forward, to try and cause Jesus to tempt to distrust the goodness of his Father. And listen, does that ring a bell for you this morning? I said, this has been the game plan from the word go. Let's go back to the first Adam, to Adam and Eve. 
Thousands of years earlier in the Garden of Eden, Satan comes to Eve and he asks her this question, do, do you mean to tell me that God told you that you couldn't eat of all these beautiful trees in the garden? Now you know if you've read Genesis, that's not what the command was at all. They had free reign of all the fruits of the garden, lest one tree. So why does Satan put it this way? Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to put this thought into Eve's heart that God doesn't have my best interest at heart. It's the same thing he's trying to sell Jesus, that God doesn't care about me. Why would he prohibit me from eating from the fruit of the field or the fruit of the garden if he truly loved me? What he did was he twisted the word and the purpose of God to get Eve to believe things about God that weren't true. And Eve, look, he's being stingy. He's being unreasonable. He doesn't care about your best interest, but I, on the other hand, I care about you. So Eve, here's what you ought to do. You ought to take from the tree the fruit that God said you can't eat, and you should eat from that tree because God is not good. God is not for you, Eve. You've got to look out for yourself. I love theologian. Derek Kinder, he said it this way about that verse. He said, so simple an act, yet so hard it's undoing that, that God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. And now do you see what Satan is doing? The same thing here in the wilderness. Jesus, take and eat. You need that bread. Your father's not provided it for you. Your father isn't good. He's, he's not worth living and dying for. He's not worth the hardship that you're facing. And do you understand, my friends, that this morning, so many of you are facing that very same temptation, that you're going through hardship, that you're tired, that you're exhausted, that you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And right now, just like he did with Adam and Eve, just like he did with Jesus in the wilderness, he's whispering in your ears, that if God truly loved you, if God truly had your best interest at heart, that you wouldn't face this trial, that you wouldn't face this temptation, that you wouldn't face this grief, that you wouldn't face this illness. And that is the proof you need that your heavenly father doesn't love you, that he doesn't have your best interest at heart. And likewise, it's a lie. It's a lie to cause you to Doubt the providence and the provision of God. And it's a lie all too often that we find ourselves falling right into willingly. Think about every time I want that and I take it, I take what's not mine, I fall into that trap. Every time I follow my sinful to heart desires of my heart for something that I know is wrong, that I know the Bible says not to, but I want it. And if God truly loved me, then he would want me to have it. Every time we do that, we fall to that sin of temptation. Guys, the game plan isn't new. From our first father and mother, it's been the same. It comes in different forms. It comes in different situations and scenarios, yet when you pull it all out, you peel the onion back, all the layers, it's the same thing. If he can get you to call or cause you to doubt the providence 
and the provision of your heavenly Father, if he can cause you to doubt the love and the care providentially and sovereignly that he has for you, then he has you. He's baited the hook, you took a bite, and he set the hook, and now you're in trouble. And in the response of Jesus, we see how we respond biblically, that he does give us what we need, that we know as Jesus responded that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from our Father's mouth. And and we see Jesus resist this temptation to doubt the providence and the provision of God. And then we get to see one better. Because in a few chapters later, the same one who resisted the temptation to turn that stone into bread in the wilderness will say to you and I, this is my body. This is my blood that's been given for you. Take and eat. Take and drink and never be hungry or thirsty again. This morning, if you're facing that temptation, if you're at the end of your rope, if you don't know where to turn or what to do, you're starting to say to yourself, well, if my father really loved me, I wouldn't be facing this. Then remember this morning the cross. The very one who stood down this temptation just a short time later, would climb the hill of Calvary, would allow sinful man to nail him to a cross, would take all of the spiritual wrath of God the Father poured out upon him for every man and woman who would ever believe, who would ever place their faith in him. When you start to doubt, you remember that moment and have all doubts removed. There is no doubt your heavenly Father has your best at heart. Now, finally this morning, I want you to see that in the way Jesus responds to the temptation, that there's a game plan for you and I as to how to respond when temptation comes our way. And and the first thing I want you to notice is how he responded by the word of God. Listen, we live in a society where we're told repeatedly that there is no such thing as absolute truth. You do what feels good to you. What seems right to you is good for you. My truth may be different than your truth. Ultimately, we live in a society that's dominated by emotions, by the heart, and we see all forms of sin and perversion upheld as virtuous because we're told, hey, it's what the heart wants. And who are you to say what's right or what's wrong? Listen, as a pastor, all too often I have people sit in my office and they will give the most ridiculous justifications for the most egregious of sins simply because who's to say it's wrong? What's right for you might not be right for me. We live in a culture dominated by this. The heart wants what it wants. We can't control that. And yet here's the prophet Jeremiah saying, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? So this morning, When that temptation hits and your heart and your emotions overtake you, the first thing I want you to do is in the words of Vodibachum, I couldn't put it better myself when he says, when your heart tells you to sin, that this is true because you feel it, you tell your heart to shut up, that it's a liar. The truth is, 
for a believer, the battle against our own wicked heart, our own corrupted emotions, is an ongoing and often exhausting war. So when temptation came the way of our Lord and Savior in the wilderness, how did he successfully respond and overcome it? He did so by relying on the absolute truth of the perfect, inerrant Word of God. And likewise, as his followers... When temptation comes our way, when we're drawn to sin, when our emotions are lying to you, when our heart's lying to us, when culture's lying to us, when our own friends and family even are lying to us, we turn aside and we rely instead on the absolute truth and revelation contained in God's perfect and errant holy word for what we're to do, for how we're to respond. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That is the playbook to defeat temptation. Your heart leading you this morning towards sexual sin, you remind your heart of Revelation 21.8 that says that all fornicators will be thrown in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur for all eternity. You facing the temptation this morning to take what doesn't belong to you, you remind your heart of 1 Corinthians 6.10 that says that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You tempted to lie this morning, to get out of a situation. Remind yourself this morning of Proverbs 12.22 that says that lying lips are an abomination to God. You tempted to gossip this morning, to talk about your brother or sister in Christ. Remind your heart that we are told to put away all slander. But even more importantly, the true roadmap for the believer in Christ to face temptation is you remind yourself of verses like Romans 5, 8. A verse that says, while you were lost in sin, while you were joyously living in your filth, in your depravity, in your wrong, while you were joyously rebelling against God, that he demonstrated his own love toward you, and that while you were a sinner, Christ Jesus died for you. And I promise you this, you want to lessen temptation, you let the truth of your sin continue driving you to the mercy and the grace of the cross, of the love of Christ. And as you do so, as you stop focusing on this world and the sin and your heart, and you start focusing more and more upon the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, you will, as the beautiful hymn says, you turn your eyes upon Jesus as you look into his wonderful face, that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and face. That's the roadmap. Now I want to look at the second thing with you this morning. That he didn't come empty-handed into this battle. That spiritually he came in prepared. I say again, look at verse 1. It says he was full of of the Holy Spirit. Now full in this verse one, we get from the Greek poleris, and it means to be saturated with, to be permeated thoroughly with. In the apostle John's gospel, he records that Jesus was also poleris, full of grace and truth. So we see the first that, that Jesus faced this temptation, not just relying on his own strength and his humanity, 
but with the strength of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus isn't even the first example we have in Luke of believers doing this because we have already been told in Luke that Zechariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, that they all faced their difficult tasks and hardships that they would go through full of the Holy Spirit. But probably the greatest example of the difference is found in the life of the Apostle Peter. I mean, I think about Peter in Acts 4. We see him boldly confronting the Sanhedrin. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4, we're told Peter in front of the Sanhedrin, it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man we stand before you, this man in good health. That Jesus Christ, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, for which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. That there is no other name under heaven whereby given among men which we must be saved. Now, for you to understand how amazing this is, you need to back up a little bit in the timeline of Peter. This is the same Peter who had just weeks earlier denied even knowing Jesus. Not just once, not just twice, but three times on the night Jesus was arrested. This same Peter now boldly and fearlessly confronting the very men who put Jesus to death. What made such a difference in Peter? How did he go from cowering before a servant girl in a courtyard denying Christ to boldly confronting the Sanhedrin and accusing them of his death? Well, We find the answer to that ultimately in the second chapter of Acts. See, if you back up even further, Jesus had promised the disciples in John 16 that when he left, they would not face the world with all its trials and its temptations alone. In John 16, 7, Jesus speaking to them says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come after Christ ascends to heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he recounts the events of that day when the promised helper arrives. And he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and begun to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the difference between the fear of Peter and the bravery of Peter is the helper. It's in the Holy Spirit through his power that Peter finds the courage and the wisdom he had lacked previously to overcome the temptation to deny Jesus once again in fear. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that would lead Peter and the rest of the apostles to turn the world on its head as they established the church early on. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that would give these same men unwavering courage to face their martyrdom, including Peter, who facing his crucifixion requested to be crucified upside down because he said he did not deserve to die the same way as his Lord. So it leads to the question, 
I mean, how, if this is how it is, if it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, then how do we become as believers saturated? Just as it says Jesus was. I mean, do we stand around waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall as he did on the day of Pentecost and, and to the disappointment of my charismatic friends? The answer is no. He's already come. He's already offered to every believer upon our putting our faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is this, it's much simpler and people might say it's much more boring because we grow in the saturation and the grace and in the strength of the Holy Spirit in doing things like you're doing right now in gathering with the other saints on the first day of the week to worship the Lord. You grow in the grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit as at home you open your Bible and you study the perfect Word of God. You grow in the power and the understanding of the Holy Spirit when you privately close your eyes and bow your head to your Heavenly Father in prayer. The truth is, through these acts of obedience, that's how, as a believer, we grow in the strength and the power. He's a gift to the believer. In him, I love what the Apostle Paul says, that the first step to the Holy Spirit to face temptation is to have him dwell in you through a relationship with Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So this morning, if you're a believer, if you're facing temptation, then you see the road map to come through it. If you're not, then I promise whether you see it or not, it's on the horizon for you. And you see the road map that our Lord laid out that when that temptation comes, this is how we face it. We deny our own sinful emotions. We deny the lies of the enemy that come into as whispers in our ear. We rely truthfully and solely upon the inerrant, perfect, holy word of God and that also as a believer, we rely upon the power and the saturation of the Holy Spirit that comes to the believer through the simple acts of obedience like reading your word, lifting your voices in praise to your heavenly Father, gathering with the other saints on Sunday to worship the perfect God. But this morning as our musicians come forward, the first step to being able to face temptation comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says that upon that relationship that the Holy Spirit is given to the believer as a seal and a pledge of your internal inheritance. So I ask you this morning, can you say truthfully, not to the preacher, not to your husband, not to your wife, not to your mom or dad. Can you say to yourself in your heart, can you say to God in heaven that you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes this morning, then God be praised. But if the answer is no, it's not a question of whether you'll fall to temptation. You will. Because Scripture's clear you don't have the power on your own to fight it, much less overcome it. 
There's an even scarier truth that's true for you this morning. Right now, God is not your heavenly Father. In this moment, He is your judge, He is your jury, and ultimately, He will be your executioner. So I ask you this morning, what could be or what could hold you back? I mean, could it be pride? Is there a sin that's promised you such pleasure that it's never delivered? Yet you're still chasing that mirage in the distance. Just one more purchase, one more sin, one for lustful action, and I'll find the peace that I've been longing for. And yet time and time and time again, it has failed to deliver what it's promised. All it has given you is greater and greater shame and pain and longing. Is that better this morning than the love and the provision of God in heaven? You know, I think about him up on the cross, that love to take the weight of the sin, to take the weight of the punishment of our heavenly father for me, the sin that I loved, the sin that I joyfully took part in, even in my ignorance, I cannot adequately describe that kind of love, but that's the love this morning that if you're apart from Christ is offered to you this very moment. You know, I used to hear preachers as a young man say things like, you're not promised tomorrow and, and you're not promised when you leave that you won't die. And I used to think, well, that's just preacher talk. You know, that's just, just them trying to get a response. But one of the things, the older I get, the more death that becomes a reality to me is as I get to walk with people through their seasons of grief, as more and more people as I grow older die, those I love, those I care for, that it's not so much anymore to me an abstract thought as an everyday reality of my life. And I understand that what the preacher said is true, that we're not promised another breath. But what you are given is an opportunity this morning by your heavenly Father for grace and mercy where none was deserved. I say Romans 5, 8 again. That while you were in your sin, while you didn't have it figured out, while you had that secret sin that you think no one knows, that your heavenly Father loved you to the point that His Son would lay down His life to redeem you. Repent and believe this morning. Accept that precious gift offered to you. You will meet Him one day as your Lord. The only question to be answered is, will He also be your Savior? If you would like someone to pray with you, I'll be down front. The altars are open this morning, whatever your need may be, be or may be. If you would like someone to pray with you, I'll be down front. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Thank you for listening to A Hope in Christ with First Baptist Church of Opelousas. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast on most major podcast providers. Or check us out on the web at www.fbcopelousas.org. First Baptist Church of Opelousas, one faith, one hope, one family.